You're listening to The Dirt on the Past, a show on history and archaeology and why it matters today. You can find us on the Extreme History Project website and also on kgbm.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Dirt on the Past from the Extreme History Project and KGBM Community Radio. Whether digging up a site or dusting off the archives, we bring you some of the most fascinating and cutting-edge research in history and archaeology and discuss why it matters today. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, alongside co-host Crystal Alegria, as we converse with anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians about how they bring the past alive. Hello and welcome, everybody. Welcome to this week's edition of the show. I'm Nancy. And I'm Crystal. And we are the co-hosts of The Dirt on the Past. This week, we're at the KGVM offices speaking via Zoom with Chip Colwell, an archaeologist and author of Plundered Skulls and Stolen Spirits, Inside the Fight to Reclaim Native America's Culture. We're excited to talk with Dr. Colwell. Um, but first, Crystal, I want to check in. How was your week? It was kind of a, a slow and calm week, which is always nice to have nice. in January. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so kind of just a week where I was thinking about what we're going to do with extreme history in the year to come, kind of some planning, doing a lot of That's planning. That's right. We have our board retreat coming yes, up. Yes, yes, we do. So, so thinking about kind of where extreme history is going, where we would like to go, and thinking a little bit more deeply about what we want to do with extreme history over the next year, but also the next five years and 10 years. So, so you know, yeah. I love that, though. I love that strategic planning, and, and I love our board retreat every year. So it's, it's, it's exciting, exciting times. But what about you, Nancy? Well, um, kind of the same thing. I took my staff for their very first um, staff retreat. It was just the senior staff, the managers, and we went away to Homestake Lodge where we could cross country ski and we were incredibly fortunate to have the most beautiful dusting of about two inches of super powdery snow so it made the cross-country skiing really easy so we kind of bonded with the lesson okay some of them had never been on cross-country skis and so it was it was great conditions to learn but beautiful trail system up high in the mountains um as you go over the pass before you get to butte And then we went out for a hilarious dinner in Butte, and that was really fun. fun. Yep, and then Butte always entertains, as I like to say. Then we had a (laughs) we had a facilitator come in and spent the whole next day in this great cabin, kind of um, going over what we want to do with the store, what our goals are, and what different roles are. So that's very exciting because we're finally in a place where we can do that. After I bought it a little over a year ago, so exactly. So I feel the same way. It's super exciting to start the new year this way. And is this our second podcast for the new year? Yeah, yeah, yeah. second podcast for 2022. I know. And this one also especially exciting to me because, Mm -hmm. again, um, Dr. Colwell, which you sometimes have had a hyphenated last name in the past when you've um, published, I have read almost everything you've written and at various times in graduate school really relied on the research you've done. And it's been it's just been fantastic to be able to prepare for this opportunity, especially with this book, which I think is something really exciting that our listeners are going to want to hear more about and pick up for themselves. Um, So we should probably get back to our guest. We should. Yeah, we should. Well, welcome. We're so glad to have you, Dr. Caldwell. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm just totally thrilled to be a part of the conversation with you both. And thank you already for the kind words you've said. 
Fantastic. And so um, what we do when we start is we first introduce a little bit of your background to our listeners. So I'm just going to go ahead and read a bio and then turn it over back to Crystal. So I want to start off by telling our listeners um, about you that you were the founding editor um, or you are the founding editor of Sapiens, which is an online magazine about anthropological thinking and discoveries. It's designed for the general public. I've already found it. You and I both yep. listen to it yep. or and read through um, different aspects of it because there's also the podcast part of Sapiens, and you are one of the co-hosts for the Sapiens podcast. Dr. Colwell received his PhD from Indiana University and has been the senior curator of anthropology at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science for 12 years. He's published more than 50 academic articles and book chapters and 12 books. His work has been highlighted in the New York Times, The Atlantic, in Foreign Affairs, on the BBC, and in TED Talks. He is the recipient of numerous honors, including the Gordon R. Willey Prize of the American Anthropological Association, quite an honor, the Mountains Plains Museum Association Leadership and Innovation Award, Society for Historical Archaeology, James Dietz Book Award. We all know James Dietz mm-hmm. in this group here. Mm-hmm. I know, no one love. Um, Council for Museum Anthropology Book Award and two National Council on Public History Book Awards. Um, quite a um, little um, sort of summary of all these amazing accomplishments. Um, so welcome, Chip. We're excited to have you. Thank you so much. So, Chip, like Nancy said, she's been reading your books for many years, as have I. And I really was introduced to you early on with your book um, published in 2008 that you edited along with T.J. Ferguson called Collaboration and Archaeological Practice, Engaging Descendant Communities. And for me, that book was really integral to my learning and my archaeological practice that I had um, and the way that I approached archaeology and anthropology. And it still really influences what I do today and how I work in collaborative inquiry with descendant communities and, and with all the partners that we at Extreme History collaborate with. So so that's one of the reasons I was excited to talk with you today. And then I read this book that we're going to dive into today and really said that's the clincher. We've got to talk to Dr. Caldwell because <laughs> I have lots of questions as well. Um, but we always start out our podcast by getting some context on you, on our speaker, our, on our guest. And so I want to know a little bit about what brought you to archaeology. Um, you are an archaeologist by training, but also uh, why then you kind of went broader into anthropology and kind of live in the anthropological world now? Yeah, well, I would say my origin story begins first in the desert and second with teachers. Uh, So I grew up in Tucson, Arizona, and from a young age, went out exploring in the desert and really fell in love with it. You know, I think it's a place that calls to my soul. Um, in terms of its beauty and its history and its heritage. And um, I had a number of teachers that really, I think, helped me um, deepen that love and turn that love into understanding of place. And so starting in sixth grade, I had really amazing teachers that um, taught a lot about history, valued history. Um, I grew up in kind of, I went to school in the historic part of Tucson in the barrio. So there was a lot of activities with, uh, we'd go out and interview elders. We would um, do a a little kind of write up and study on a local shrine that was right next to our school. 
Um, we would go across the street to the tortilla factory and, and taste um, heritage, you know, in our mouths. And so I think that those teachers really sparked not just kind of a love of it, but also uh, like giving me tools to understand, you know, the place that made me. And then in high school, I had another amazing teacher um, that uh, convinced the administration to teach an anthropology course. So when I was 15, 16 years old, I was already going out on some digs and going to archaeology sites like Chaco Canyon and New Mexico and all these other amazing places. And by the time I was a senior, I was doing uh, animal bone analysis, zoo archaeology and other kinds of work. So pretty much by the time I graduated high school, I knew that this is what I wanted my life to be. But then as I got deeper into the field, I realized that there was a complex history that had to be uh, dealt with. And anthropology, even though its subject, especially in the United States, had long been Native Americans, Native Americans didn't always welcome themselves as being the anthropological subject. And this was in the mid-90s, early 90s, right when the Native American Graves Protection Repatriation Act was just taking off. So this law that facilitates the return of, of some sacred items and ancestral remains to tribes. And it was those were uneasy years. You know, I saw around me a lot of anger, a lot of frustration. Um, and I didn't see a lot of Native Americans in my classroom, you know, as my professors um, in the CRM company that I worked for. Um, you know, and so there was this bridge that I that I understood that had to be uh, built. Um, and many people had already been trying to do that before me, obviously. And uh, but there was the need for a lot more stone and I think a lot more labor, you know, to really make that bridge happen. And so I was fortunate enough um, in the early 2000s to um, work under T.J. Ferguson, who's a phenomenal human being and archaeological archaeological anthropologist. And um, I started to collaborate with Native peoples. And TJ had already done this for 25 years, and he was and is incredibly skilled at um, building meaningful relationships with tribal communities, um, true partnerships where projects benefit multiple stakeholders and often are even driven by the communities themselves. And um, so the book that you mentioned, the 2008 uh, edited volume, was really um, our TJ's and my attempt to um, expand the conversation beyond just the work he and I had been doing together in the South American Southwest um, to talk about how many people had been doing this kind of work all over. Um, and I'm really um, just uh, always humbled to see, you know, here we are what, 12, 14, 15 years later almost, and that book is still being read and used. And so I, th I think it speaks to um, maybe how that book arrived right at a moment in the discipline when it was ready for some change. Um, and I think um, that book became a part of a bigger movement. I think so too. Yeah, absolutely. I um, it's it's fun to hear because your um, your journey parallels just a lot of the mm -hmm. experiences I had going to graduate school. I had gotten a master's degree and I arrived in. Arizona in 1993. And um, I had originally thought I would be doing archaeology in Cyprus, where I had done some research, and I would be an old world archaeologist. And then I got invited by Keith Kintig to go on my first project in the Four Corners area, met TJ Ferguson. And I had 
decided that I was um, fascinated by Chaco Canyon and and all of this. But but to your point, I um, I had no idea that um, when I came back and was sort of thinking about this as the next semester started after a summer of doing southwestern archaeology, I had several archaeologists in the department at ASU say, um, oh, don't go into Southwestern archaeology, you know, because mm-hmm. now because NAGPRA, there won't be anything. It won't be. So there was mm-hmm. still that. It was the early 90s. And so all that tension. And then literally it did feel like sort of as we got into the 2000s, things things really changed so much. But it was it was interesting to be there at that time in the thick of it and to see the, the worry by the archaeologists. And as you mm-hmm. said, sort of then this, you know, my graduate school classes were filled with um, – you know, white students. There was no mm-hmm. Native Americans mm-hmm. involved, and that that landscape mm-hmm. has changed quite a bit since then. So that's that's so exciting mm-hmm. because you've been such a part of that. Um, so this book today that we're really diving into, Plundered Skulls and Stolen Spirits, which was published in 2017, um, I think is a really powerful book and is really accessible to the public. And that was one of the ones we really wanted to to bring out of of the body of work that you've put out there. And in the book, you know, you ask the questions about who really owns the objects of the past, the stories about the past, the ways that we connect to history, and who who are the people who, you know, we have all these different stakeholders. We have people who are landowners who've been out in the West for generations, but we have Native people, tribes who have been here so much longer their ancestors have and these are their ancestors Um, and then you have people who believe they have the expertise about the objects and then you have this idea that some of this is on public land so is it is it owned and belong to the nation right so we've got all those different things going on so these questions are complicated who has the right to display it to exhibit what to choose what to exhibit to choose what to say about it and then in particular the physical human remains of people and or the objects that were buried with them. Um, so what role does the museum have um, in this? The people who study it, um, the people who created the artifacts and their descendants, all of those questions never even used to be questions until we really finally got to the point of NAGPRA. So in this book, you you address this by taking readers on your personal journey to understand how repatriation has transformed museums and tribal nations. And so repatriation is something that became um, a word we're all familiar with in terms of bringing objects and or human remains back to the lands in which they came from. And we can talk about that word a little bit more. But under NAGPRA, which is a term we'll use a lot here, but that Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, it's right there in, in the law. How to do that? How do we do that? That wasn't even a thing, right? So trying to figure out on the museum end um, and on the end of what you even do if remains come back to a tribe, right? There are no ceremonies for that, and you, and you talk about that. So the book follows really to, to create the, the understanding for the public. You follow a trail of four specific objects that were created collected and then ultimately returned to their sources. And the stories really reveal the complications of that process, negotiations that involve aspects of identity, morality, belief, spirituality, and politics, right? There's always Mm -hmm. politics and economics involved. Um, 
And while you were writing the book, it was at this point where you were serving as senior curator of anthropology at the Denver Museum. Um, so you were really an insider on the front lines with this. So this is a, a section that really jumped out to Crystal and I, so we just want to read it. And then before we get to this question, I'm giving a lot of narration here, but we are getting to a question, I promise. Um, <laughs> so, a great summary. Okay. <laughs> so you start the book with this paragraph, um, quote, past the moon rock, past the Tyrannosaurus Rex and the smoker's black lungs, past the eight-pound nugget of crystallized gold and the Egyptian sarcophagus, past the Russian gem carvings and the grizzly bear diorama, and through an unmarked door is a room filled with the bones of Native Americans. And that's just such a a colorful, powerful, I think you must have had fun writing that, but Mm -hmm. to me that encapsulates all the the fun and the excitement that we imagine of being an insider in the museum and getting to go in the basements. But then you come up short with this, you know, idea that these ancestral bones are just down there with all this other stuff. There are, there are people down there. Um, So every museum in the country um, that has had native American remains um, and or artifacts ranging from arrowheads and pottery. There are many throughout the U S and there are many that are full on museums or some just historical societies. And this is all outside of even personal collections. Um, But in 1990, that's when we're talking about the passage of NAGPRA, um, which allows indigenous people to reclaim the remains of their ancestors Um, and any funerary objects associated with them, as well as items that are sacred or communally owned objects by the tribes. Um, But this is only this is only for items um, in museums that receive federal funding. So it's not really applying to all places. And then it's supposed to apply to protect all items that haven't even been taken out of the ground yet, but again, only applies to public lands that are federally owned. So so this is a an amazing piece of legislation to get passed, but it's still in no way comprehensive. Um, so tell us a little bit about what NAGPRA has meant to Indigenous people, to museum professionals, and scientists from, from your perspective. Well, I appreciate you... Uh, calling attention to that opening uh, paragraph in the book, because I think, as you say, it was intended to capture some of the fun that people expect when they come to museums. But it was also this this kind of um, tour of a museum, in my mind, where, you know, as a visitor, you see all these things on display. And then within this museum in Denver, but like many museums, there's this kind of hidden room and in this hidden room are skeletons, are human remains, are the people who once lived in North America and elsewhere. And these are ancestors of living people today. And so that room is a kind of closet. So there are literal skeletons in a closet. And so I think what NAGPRA has done is opened the door to those closets and made us confront these these really tangled histories, but also very tangled and complex moral, legal, uh, political, spiritual questions that are all raised by the crisis of what to do of with these collections, these thousands and thousands of human bodies and parts of human bodies that have been stolen from graves, uh, looted, 
um, from shrines um, taken from people's backyards, from their communities, from their sacred lands, and that have ended up in museums in the United States and far beyond. So NAGPRA, um, this 1990 federal law, as you point out, even though it's imperfect, has still accomplished a tremendous amount. Um, when the law was passed, no one knew exactly how many, even how many ancestors are in and were in, in, in museums. Some people estimated millions, some people estimated just thousands. So we now know um, past 30 years of the law's um, compliance that there's, there were about 200,000 individuals or parts of individuals represented in U.S. museums. And here we are 30 years later, and about 40% of those individuals have been returned. And almost 2 million funerary objects have been returned, and somewhere around 15,000 sacred and communally owned objects have been returned as well. Um, so in three decades, there has been a lot of work done to transfer the rights of those ancestors and objects to descendant groups. Um, and yet there's still a lot more to be done, you know, and I think we'll, we'll be talking more about that. But, you know, I think um, in short, NAGPRA has, I think, opened the, the, uh, the history that needed to be confronted and, and it's, it's a work in progress, um, but it's meant for the first time in many native communities that they've had the rights to their ancestors and their sacred objects that they otherwise wouldn't have had and didn't have uh, for decades and decades prior to the passage of the law. I want to um, I want to just ask a couple of things. You do talk in the book about how, as you're meeting with these elders from tribes, and literally kind of on the other side of the wall, you can hear people looking at exhibits. So it very much feels like this mm-hmm. secret room, but there's that weird sense that the public's just there enjoying displays. And at one time, a lot of these human remains were often on display or funerary objects. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and so, yes, they're not on display anymore, but there's there's still so many complications with having them in co- collections. And, and one of them you talk about is that the elders that you're talking to, you know, there's a, a deep held belief that this is very dangerous to be encountering human remains and that there often has to be, you know, smudging with sage, sagebrush, probably certain words said. And this is just a very difficult thing to even accept back human remains if they even go through the whole process of being repatriated. Um, and that you also then have to, uh, you know, they're worried about you as well as, as being someone involved, but that you as a scientist, you and your training, you know, you don't necessarily hold those beliefs. You don't feel that you're in danger by the relationship you have with them. And you understand what we can get from these bones as science, but that, you know, this is much more than that, right? So you're kind of holding those two things. So I often have people ask me, um, they like to say, but there's so much we can learn from these objects. When I pose these questions to students and things like that, they're like, so, you know, shouldn't we learn everything we can before we give them back? Or if it were my ancestors, I would be happy to have people study them. And I'm, I'm thinking... But would you really, if this was really in the situation? And so I have I have a specific way I get people to try to think about it differently. But I'm really interested to hear, I'm sure you've encountered similar questions and conversations. How do you do that when people say, you know, I wouldn't mind if, if you know, I think it would be cool if yeah. you studied my Viking ancestors or whatever, you know. Yeah. How do you address that? Yeah, so you know, it's, it's uh, I'd love to hear how you, you respond as well. But um, because it is such a common refrain, um, so I think you could 
approach it in a few ways. One is to say that although people might verbalize that, um, it's probably not really true. You know, um, that if, and you simply can look at the collections in natural history museums and they are hugely, hugely skewed. I mean, like probably, you know, 99% in a lot of museums, maybe 90% in others, but hugely skewed towards black and brown bodies that have been collected and that are in museums. And the reason is because there have been unequal rights given to uh, protecting cemeteries. And if you look like me, a white guy, and you're placed in a cemetery that often much of the US's history were placed in uh, spaces, especially for people who look like me and had my, my skin tone, then those are protected spaces and you could not go in there. I can't just march down the street and go to the, there's a cemetery just down the road from me, the oldest in Denver here where I live. And it's an amazing place. I could learn so much from, from the remains there. There's, there, for example, is uh, the remains of John Shivington, who mm, uh, right. oversaw the massacre of mm. Cheyenne and Arapahoe Indians um, in 1864, and whose remains ended up in museums, including the one I worked at, as well as the Smithsonian and many others. As much as I would love to understand how this madman um, did what he did, and I could you know, learn all kinds of things by digging up his grave, I would be arrested if mm. I go and dig up his grave. Mm. But he had no problem, and him and his peers had no problem, of mutilating the bodies of the massacre victims uh, of the Sand Creek Massacre and, and their descendants putting those body parts in museums. Mm-hmm. So the simple fact is people might like theoretically say, oh, yes, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. sure, no problem, dig up my grandmother. The reality is I couldn't dig up your grandmother mm-hmm. because the, the structures in place within our society would not allow me to dig up someone who had a white body. But for many years, they would allow me to dig up somebody who didn't have my skin tone, right? So I think like pulling back a little from that individual choice and looking at like the larger structures of power that enable these these collections to have been formed is one way of approaching it. Mm. But in that opening scene, I also emphasize purposefully the difference of experience that I had. And um, for so many of my Native colleagues that I've worked with on these issues through the years, these are heart-rending, soul-crushing issues to be dealing with. You know, take just the remains of having to uh, not just have the, the lived history of a massacre of your community, but then to know that your ancestors, your great grandmothers, your aunts, your cousins, and so on, that their body parts from a massacre have ended up in museums, to have to live with that is just horrifying. I mean, I can't even begin to have that tap into what that emotional experience must be. And then to actually have to go through the process of reclaiming them, you know, finding ways, working with your community on these very, what can be divisive issues of you know, how do we treat these ancestors? Where do we rebury them? How do we rebury them? Who pays for it, right? All of these kinds of practical logistical issues in the face of this horrifying history. Um, you know, for the, on the Native side, it's incredibly emotionally wrought. Um, but me, you know, I'm detached. I'm the scientist, I'm the curator, and I don't share many of those spiritual beliefs or religious beliefs, right? 
Um, and to me, that's where um, being an anthropologist or maybe even just being a good human comes in, where it's really about just because I don't share those beliefs or I don't share that emotional experience or I don't share that history doesn't mean that those people who do have that don't have the right um, to have those feelings and experiences. And it doesn't mean that I shouldn't respect them because they're someone else's. It's really about empathy. It's about understanding. It's about human dignity. And can we give human dignity to others, even if we don't share their experience, their identity, their beliefs? And so to me, repatriation is just a broader call for a human kind rights, of just basic human broader rights, human really, rights, exactly, yeah. that just because you don't have the same values doesn't mean someone else's values aren't legitimate. Right. Yeah, there's a, yeah. There's How a about lot for you? there. What do you what do you say? I go a little more visceral tip. Um, okay. So what I yeah. do to convince students that this is that they well, not to convince them to really make them think about it is I say, imagine World War Two that we didn't weren't on the side that won. So we have the country that has been now we're dominated by Nazis and Japanese and um, the bodies of people who've died have been taken off the battlefields. And the Japanese and the Nazis are putting them in museums. And they are describing all these measurements of, you know, these North American bodies and how um, we can demonstrate scientifically that they're inferior people and why mm -hmm. we came to. Because really, I think that's much more akin to what mm -hmm. actually happened. Mm -hmm. And I think yeah. the not only like you just said that it's it's you've been defeated and you've been defeated in a really horrific atrocious way and then people that you know that were your people that fought mm -hmm. in that are then stuck up and all these things are being said about them as truth that are incredibly derogatory to a whole mm -hmm. group of people who look like you and shared your mm -hmm. cultural values mm -hmm. and so it's that complete domination as well as and mm -hmm. so then you're like are they even really doing science and i think that mm -hmm. gives them the fuller picture of um so for me that is the only mm -hmm. time when i finally found that analogy was the only time i actually had people go oh like, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. okay, no, it. I don't yeah. really think of it as just science because then mm -hmm. it's not just science, it's political. Mm -hmm. And that's what mm -hmm. I think we forget. We think we're just mm -hmm. doing science. Like when mm -hmm. I first got into archaeology, I was mm -hmm. like, oh, yeah. And then you realize, oh, no, the whole context that allows me to do the science is this dom structure of domination that we've inherited. You know, we didn't do it, but that's what allows it. And then only when you're confronting um, living Native Americans themselves. And I think archaeologists often were able to not have to do that. Like they could just not talk to living descendants, but then they go and ask a question about something they were digging up. And that's when they realized, oh, these people have no interest in what I can tell them about their ancestors. They already know what they need to know. And what am I doing? You know, and that was what really, for me, was eye opening. And that's where I kind of found your work and, and felt, oh, yes, there are more of us who are starting to understand what this discipline does and so you can't just have a scientific perspective that's not mm -hmm. that's not all there is you know so so thank you for all that mm -hmm. context i think that's hopefully helpful to people who are listening yeah so chip in your book you you talk in addition to human remains you talk about other artifacts sacred artifacts um and and you talk about four case studies or four of these um artifact groups in the book and uh, these groups of objects that were created by indigenous people and then collected 
by anthropologists, archaeologists, stored in museums, and then given back or repatriated um, eventually. And so I want to just dive into one of those groups of objects today. We've already talked a little bit about some of the Sand Creek Massacre, which you talk about in the book as well. Mm -hmm. But um, I want to dive in to talk a little bit about the Zuni war gods. And I think this is fascinating. And I didn't know much about the Zuni war gods before I read this book. You and Nancy are both steeped in in the Southwest, and I am not as much. So it was fascinating to me. So can you tell us a little bit about the war gods, and how they ended up in museums throughout the United States, but also internationally. So the war gods uh, is, a, is a rough term for uh, a, a sacred living being to the Zuni people and other Pueblo people of the U.S. Southwest. Um, these beings are twins Um, that were central to the migration of the Zuni people from their emergence place to where they are today and um, really are important in protecting the homeland of the Zuni people. And so to uh, give embodiment to these spirit beings, every year uh, Zuni priests uh, carve Uh, to Ahayuda, as they're called in the Zuni language. And War Gods is the name you often see in English. Uh, Probably a better translation, I'm told by Zuni elders, is keepers of the sky, uh, because these are really guardians. These are are beings that are there to serve uh, the Zuni people, to protect them um, where they are, and to keep the world in balance, uh, earth and sky and everything else. So these... Uh, spirit beings are carved and as they're carved Zuni elders and priests and the community uh, breathe they believe breathe life into these wood sculptures so that they are no longer wood sculptures but they become actual beings and through these ceremonies they're then placed on a shrine and a series of shrines um, around the Zuni homeland where over the course of the year they're to serve as protectors Uh, When their service is done, uh, a new set is created uh, as the ceremonies are renewed, and the previous ones uh, are retired, and they're laid behind the the shrine where they are collectively working together to ensure the safety and well-being of the world as much as Zuni people. And uh, these are amazing objects, um, they're amazing beings, um, and they're amazing parts of the Zuni and Pueblo story and history and culture. And so when anthropologists first arrived in the Zuni homeland in the 1880s, uh, they were just totally fascinated by them and wanted to collect them. And so many of these shrines are in areas that are unprotected because they're at the periphery of the Zuni homeland. And so they proved to be very easy to steal. And so um, almost all of the very first anthropologists who came to Zuni, you kind of couldn't come to Zuni and couldn't and come home without one sort of thing. So uh, very large numbers of them were collected um, by early anthropologists. Then uh, in the early 20th century, these items, these beings became seen as a... Uh, representation of 
of um, aesthetic ideals that were being um, shared in the art world around so-called primitive art. And so they became uh, collector items then for art museums and artists. And so then that started a whole nother set of um, thefts. So by the 1970s, there were more than 100 Ayuda uh, that were known um, to have been stolen and that were eventually located in museums and private collections. And prior to this is prior to NAGPRA, in the late 1970s, the Zuni uh, uh, religious leadership um, with the assistance of non-Zunis, including T.J. Ferguson, uh, decided to uh, start a movement to reclaim these beings for for their community on behalf of their community and on behalf of the world, because they believe that without these beings in their shrines, that, that chaos can be unleashed. So um, they were uh, embarking on a journey with an unknown end, because at the time, very few items had been returned, uh, but they were incredibly successful through their persistence and tenacity, uh, their powers of persuasion, and I think just the the clear rightness of what they were doing, that these were uh, items that were made, beings that were brought to life for the community as a whole. And so no one had the right to, no individual had the right to take these items and place them in a museum or any other context that only the Zuni tribe as a whole had the right to decide uh, how these items should be cared for. And so, um, the Ahayuda and their return became a kind of case study um, for how to do repatriation. Uh, it was mentioned in the formation of the law. And um, by you know, the mid-90s, almost every single Ahayuda in the United States in public collections um, had been returned. Um, I had graduated college in 1990 and before I went back to graduate school the year in between I did an internship at the University of Pennsylvania and um, that year I didn't even know that the Zuni were a Pueblo in the southwest I didn't know who the Zuni were but as part of the internship one day I heard um, all these people talking about the Zunis were coming this man was coming with them who had pure white hair and like, you know, the long beard with the braid in it, you know, the white. And I was like, this is TJ Ferguson and they're here about the war gods. And I didn't know anything about this. And so it was fascinating because that was the first time I heard what they were, that repatriation was a thing. And this was really, you know, still super new and people at University of Pennsylvania were um, uncomfortable with the whole thing, but trying to figure it out. And they, um, you know, I, I, I said, why, why is this a controversy? And then they said, well, because with these beings, um, so many of them are made of wood. And the, the idea is that they are supposed to not be preserved forever. They're supposed to be open to the elements and then they naturally decay. So I think not only was this a first story for me about repatriation, and as you have described, a first case study kind of for the world, you know, to kind of see. But it was a very unusual case of um, what is now going to happen to the objects? They're not going to be somewhere where anyone can see them, and they're not even going to continue to exist in perpetuity, which is generally why objects are in museums. So talk about that a little bit. Like, I just, I love that I had this very... Um, 
brief and I, I didn't even know what I was encountering. And only literally when then I went to Arizona much later for graduate school, you know, after I did a master's and then went there, only then was that aha moment of what I had seen and not really understood the full ramifications of. Mm-hmm. So I love that this story is such a central story to kind of understanding um, this really interesting case of repatriation. So yeah, tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, yeah that's amazing that you had that brief uh, intersection with history in that way and in such an important moment. So very cool. Um, yes, so the difference in values around preservation, I think, go to the heart of what can often be a culture clash uh, around determining the fate of these objects in museums. And this was a culture clash that was made clear all the way back from the very first efforts as the Zuni elders tried to reclaim their their beings. Uh, so the the in back in the 1970s, in the late 1970s, the, the elders were trying to find where the Ahayuta were and then try to find you know a path forward on trying to reclaim them. And one of the first museums that they targeted for repatriation was the Denver Art Museum. Uh, They had a number of consultations and back and forth. And finally, um, the board uh, was going to agree to return the Ahayuta that were in their collections until they found out that the Zunis wanted to put them right back onto the shrines, (laughs) which meant, you know, from the perspective of these art curators and board members, these beautiful pieces of art were going to be destroyed. That's like akin to, you know, taking, you know, David and smashing it to the ground um, and, you know, not caring, right? So the values, the cultural values, everything about the art museum world and naturalist museum world writ large is to preserve forever. Whereas in Zuni, um, I think they take a, in my personal view, they take a longer look at the reality of organic matter mm-hmm. and non-organic matter mm-hmm. and say, their, their phrasing is all things eat themselves up, meaning nothing lasts forever. Nothing, 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 right? Given enough time, everything will be gone. Mm-hmm. And that is simply true. And so they welcome that, that they see that as a part of the natural world, the natural cycle. That's what it means to be human. That's what it means to be a keeper of the sky. That's what it means to be a corn of cob, right? Uh, cob, uh, you know, corn cob. It's, it's what it means to live in this world is to eventually dis- disappear. Mm-hmm. And so the power of the Ahayuda is that they disintegrate and they go back into the earth. So that particular resolution was that they, Zuni, after a lot of back and forth, um, they put a kind of steel cage over a newly constructed shrine that would have um, stone walls around it um, so that basically no one could steal them again. But then the top of it would be open mm-hmm. um, so that the natural elements um, would allow them to disintegrate. So there was kind of a compromise solution where they agreed with the curators, their concerns that these would just be stolen again, but they really insisted it, it you know, that they be allowed to disintegrate. Um, but, you know, I think it goes back to this question of respecting others' worldviews and their perspectives of who they are. And, you know, just as, you know, from, I think you can kind of place it within a private property paradigm almost mm-hmm. where, you know, say the two of you have, you know, some heirloom that is really precious to you. 
and you know, say a set of silver, um, what right do I have to go into your home and take it away from you because you wanted to serve it for Sunday din- dinner when you had some friends? Because you're going to use it, but you might break it, you might mm-hmm. drop it, mm-hmm. you know, it might, you know, might not be around longer. And I think that's really special. That, that doesn't give me a right to determine, you know, what's in your household in your home. So I think again, even in these Western frameworks, there's ways of making sense of it. Um, and then there's the broader human rights framework that that just talk about, you know, understanding and having empathy and respect for others' practices. And to me, I think that actually makes us more human and, and a better anthropologists because we are not just trying to preserve an object, you know, this cup that's here on my desk or the silver that's in your closet or in Ahayuda. We are trying to preserve the cultural worlds that surround these objects. And so if a museum actually contributes to the survival of Zuni culture because the Zuni community knows these items are living on their shrine, and these are actually shrines they go and visit and that they pray to these uh, beings, the museums then have an incredibly powerful role in our society because they aren't just storing dead objects in a closet, but they're actually assisting the living cultures uh, around around them to ensure that they survive far into the future. Mm. So to me, it's a it's a slight reframing of what the museum is today. Um, but in my view, it's it's a better kind of museum because it cares not just about dead things, but also living people. Mm. I love that. I, I do as well. Yeah. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But I want to circle back really quickly to talk about the... Um, like you said, the war gods here in the United States have all been returned, which is wonderful. But of course, some of these um, war gods were also collected by museums in Europe and across throughout the world. And so you talk about in your book, um, a trip that you took with um, Mr. Octavius Sewatoa. Sewatoa? Am I saying that right? No. Sewatoa. Sewatoa. Okay. 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 And and you, a Zuni elder, and the two of you took a trip across Europe to go and view these war gods and ask for their return. So can you tell us a little bit about the reactions you received, which you, you've kind of already mentioned, but, mm-hmm. you know, kind of these European reactions and mm-hmm. and were you able to bring any of them home? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I was very fortunate to be able to travel to Europe, um, visiting a half dozen museums with Octavia Siautewa, a Zuni religious leader and political, uh, excuse me, religious leader and uh, leader of uh, an elder religious group um, at Zuni. And uh have conversations around the Ayuda that are there in Europe because NAGPRA is limited to North America. There are no international treaties or other mechanisms to facilitate repatriation internationally. So it's really just a, a, a kind of moral uh, uh, sojourn, you know, to try to convince these museums about the rightness of return. And, um, it was fascinating. You know, I learned a lot. And I think if I were to reduce the experience to to one thing, I just felt like, you know, what TJ must have felt like in 1970, because 
these were brand new conversations. There was there's no legal structure. There was no very little precedent. Right. There is. It just felt brand new, like you were almost starting from scratch. And you realize that even though in the United States internally, you know, people have been doing these now since the late 1970s in Europe, in many institutions, they've just just begun if they've even begun at all. So we were not very successful. <laughs> uh, and uh, but I, I would like to think that some doors were opened. Um, most notably, there there is a museum in the Netherlands that is interested in returning one of the Ayuda they have. Mm. And um, it was helped along because the there was documentation, you know, that they held that said um, the Ayuda was surreptitiously taken. Mm. Um, so essentially, that documentation where it was acknowledged that it was stolen. Mm. Um, and so that helped a lot. Additionally, there were some amazing curators there. It's really fascinating, mm. too, just to see how individual these uh, movements are, you know, for repatriation, where if you find the right person who aligns with your values and they see that this is something that should be done and could be done, um, it's a very different reaction um, than in other places where, um, you know, people I think are still learning or trying to understand what's what's at stake. So there's, there is, I think, a lot in the Netherlands, in other words, where you had just some really great curators and administrators who really want to do the right thing. So we were starting some of those conversations, and then COVID happened and mm. really put a stop to it all because the tribe stopped meeting um, and no international travel and so on and so forth. So I'm still hopeful that that will happen, and then that might also become a precedent for some of the other museums in Europe. Mm. Wonderful, wonderful, yeah. wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, Chip, we want to take a quick station break before we dive into our next question. Um, you're listening to The Dirt on the Past with co-hosts Crystal Alegria and Nancy Mahoney on KGVM Bozeman or wherever you find your podcasts. We are speaking today with author and archaeologist Chip Colwell about his book, Plundered Skulls and Stolen Spirits, Inside the Fight to Reclaim Native Americans' Culture. So... Um, you talk a bit, and you've already just hinted at sort of this paradox in a way for museums today in the role they face, especially if they have um, objects and items um, that are of Native America and those tribes. So the future for museums, potentially you mentioned, is a way you might think of the purpose of them as changing just from places that hold objects of the past to places that hold living cultures. So um, it, can you just expand on that a little bit more? Because that's a particularly intriguing idea. And is this only true maybe for um, museums of natural history and anthropology or the ones that tend to have some of these collections? Or is that possible that it can be expanded out to not just public institutions, um, but but also private institutions and then museums that also hold art, because you mentioned that has become sometimes a holder of some of these objects that belong to Native peoples. I think we are seeing a broader movement, which was in part sparked by NAGPRA and its aftermath. Prior to 1990, there weren't many museums that had collaborative programs with Native American communities there were very few museums where Native peoples were uh, 
frequently coming into collections, studying collections, contributing to exhibits, providing guidance on research projects and so on. And a funny thing happened after NAGPRA, which requires consultation or conversations between tribes and, and museums, they found they actually have a lot in common and that uh, in many cases, um, there's no need to be antagonistic, um, that they often are, are uh, can be partners in trying to honor people's past, trying to understand the role of history in people's lives today, and sharing and understanding culture. And so what we have seen since NAGPRA is, although there are still some museums that uh, don't have good relations with Native communities and others, um, many, many more do. And I think we can definitively point back to NAGPRA as the mechanism by which people just started talking to each other Hmm. and from those conversations started working together. Uh, So there is quite a broad movement. I would say, you know, I I hope it still goes much, much further. Um, I think there's still often unequal power relations between the museum and communities and so on. And, you know, there's always room for improvement and to be better. But for the most part, museums are thinking differently, you know, in the United States, they're in in Europe and elsewhere too. They're, you know, thinking about community. They're thinking about who are their stakeholders. And it's not always just the people who pay for admission uh, to get into the museum. Um, And so I think what we've seen then in the last two years, um, especially on the heels of the Black Lives Matter movement, is a recognition of how museums continue to too often be elite institutions in our midst, serving a very small portion of the population. So I see that as yet another kind of spark um, that is pushing museums even further in this direction. So I think it is happening. Um, It's kind of slow and maybe not far and fast enough, um, but I do see a change uh, in the last uh, decades uh, Mm -hmm. following from NAGPRA and beyond. Yeah. And even beyond the collaborations, it seems getting more... Um, staff who are people from Native mm-hmm. communities and, and are involved on the board or as consultants mm-hmm. on different levels. It seems, mm-hmm. I mean, we feel that way about graduate school and all these different programs, mm-hmm. but just that real involvement at that core level, um, you know, not just as outside consultants. It seems like that'll really bring about some some mm-hmm. different ways uh, that museums can really hold living culture. So I love that idea. Mm-hmm. I love it. And, you know, in your book, you really model that. You you model in all these case studies how you you worked with descendant community members, but also how people that you were working with were working and collaborating with descendant community members. So I think um, the moral of the story here, the moral of the book is that we can work together and we it's imperative that we do work together. And you say we have we have much to lose by working against one another and much to gain by working together. And so it all comes down to relationships and um, relationship is the most important thing. And uh, that's what you you talk about in your work all the time is those building of those relationships. Mm-hmm. And that's what um, we found. That's what Nancy and I found in our work as well mm-hmm. and all the folks that we work with. So um, – let me see. What was my question? Well, I wanted, I wanted to. I wanted to tell you what your question was because okay, you're yeah. totally going in the right direction. Your oh, question. Oh, I know what it was. Oh, sorry. Ahead, okay. Okay. Ahead, well, ahead. what I thought your question was, which is um, this importance of relationships, which we have found has been 
super fascinating, especially um, in our relationship with sort of the the history graduate department here mm-hmm. at MSU. It is um, it's not something where you can just say, "Ooh, I have a research idea for my own project, mm-hmm. and I want to just go and ask some questions." Relationship building is now what's being demanded. Whether you're an archaeologist or historian, anthropologist, whatever sort, there, you know, I think I think tribal communities, Native Americans are saying, "You, this, the, I'm not just this open source." You know, there's either collaborations or we need to have a, an honest, true relationship, which means I have to know you for a long time. I need to know you. You you haven't met my family. You don't know really who I like. It's a very different thing, and it, it's it's fascinating because I think we've seen historians who are who are terrified, and they're like, well, well, who can I hire as an intermediate? And it's it's so interesting because it's been not a part of the way I think traditionally in Western academia and those institutions that people have thought about doing that research. And now people are recognizing the important role of having, you know, indigenous voices, but you can't, it's just not a quick fix. So Mm -hmm. I, I, and I imagine, you know, that very well (laughs) from your experience, we feel like we're seeing people who are just discovering that and, and it's Mm -hmm. complicated and it requires honest and true, I think, long-term relationship building. Is that Mm -hmm. sort of, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that I think summarizes it very well. Uh, you know, I often reflect back to a moment back in probably 2001 um, when I was starting my dissertation research in Arizona, and I sat down with uh, tribal council members of the Tana Autumn Nation, and I wanted to do some research uh, that related to their ancestors. And so I had this presentation and, you know, PowerPoint, and I was showing them all this stuff and trying to convince them. And uh, one of the tribal members said, you know, paraphrasing, you know, you know that, that's really interesting and seems like a good project. But what are we going to get out of it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Said, you're going to get your dissertation, you're getting some grants, you're going to get publications, you're building your career. I, I see what you're getting out of it, mm-hmm. but right. how about mm-hmm. us? Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. And I was, you know, you Unfortunately, I didn't have a handkerchief because I was sweating bullets, you know, trying. I'd never been confronted so directly. No, with, and, and your graduate advisors probably didn't prepare you for that question because I had almost the identical <laughs> experience at Hopi. And I, yeah. and I was dumbfounded. And I'm like, yeah. oh, oh. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Like, of course. For your time to work with you, mm. uh, to work on your ancestors, of course, there should be some benefit. So I think that moment, I think we all need, those of us who want to do this work um, and those who support it need to reflect on the power of that moment and and the effort that's required for mutual benefit. And it doesn't have to be all at once. And to go full circle back to the 2008 book on collaboration, TJ and I talked about the collaborative continuum where projects and relationships don't always have to just kind of be locked in one form that, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes maybe it makes sense for, you know, a museum or a researcher to kind of be in charge and to direct a project. Sometimes it makes sense for it to be totally mutual, for it to go both ways, you know, totally equal. And sometimes it makes sense for it to be community driven, right? And sometimes it even makes sense to to have resistance for, you know, it can't always, you can't always get along all the time with everyone, right? Um, you know, if there's a, you know, group of, you know, uh, if Nazis want to claim a certain kind of heritage, it doesn't mean you should work with them just because they're a stakeholder or a community, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> so it's okay to say no to sometimes and use our 
values and our ethics to inform those decisions. So you have this continuum. So the question though is, you know, where are you on the continuum? Can you justify it? Does it make sense? And when can you grow and expand and deepen those relationships to have more and more meaningful work together? Mm-hmm. Um, so to me, that continuum also helps us uh, understand how um, we we can we don't have to start, you know, always at like the most radical point. You know, you can you can enter that continuum at any point mm-hmm. and then navigate it, negotiate it based on where you are in your career, based on the communities you're working with and their interests based on, you know, a whole range of factors that can either expand or limit a project. Um, So that's uh, for me, a powerful tool uh, for people to think about, to, to find ways to begin to do this work. Mm. Yes. Did did you have an addition? Did you think of your question? I did, but you know, we kind of answered it. My question just was, you know, have you had any, um, updates or epiphanies since your 2017 book, since the um, since the book came out about these this idea around relationship, and I think you eloquently answered that. So yeah, wonderful. So, so we want to switch um, focuses. I don't think that's the right word. Um, we want to switch gears for a little bit here. I don't think focus is it foci. That just doesn't sound right, so I'm not going to say it. <laughs> so we're going to talk about your role as editor in chief of Sapiens, uh, which is the digital magazine. Um, Sapiens launched in 2016, and the mission is to bring anthropology, this study of human beings, sort of in terms of the wholeness of it, right? That holistic aspect of the discipline. We have physical anthropology, archaeology, linguistics, cultural, so sort of that whole big, broad understanding of what it means to be human, to bring that um, study of anthropology to the public in a way that's accessible. The objective being to deepen our understanding really broadly of the human experience um, by looking at sort of these very thought-provoking, unconventional ideas, things things that are have a newness to them, a novelty to them, um, make people think differently about what they maybe thought they understood about the human experience and, and other humans. Um, so tell us a little bit about how that got started, that magazine, Sapiens, as well as the Sapiens podcast. How does that feel? How is it different than doing museum work? What you love about it? I'm just super interested to hear about that whole kind of evolution of your involvement in that. Sure. Well, in working with Native American history and culture and Native peoples, um, I saw how often the work that researchers do and academics do never make it back to the communities who are perhaps most vested in that research and those ideas Um, that they don't have access to the resources that academics do, and that how often, you know, our ideas as scholars ends up stuck in an ivory tower. So in the work I did with Native peoples, I've wanted to try to um, expand ways of academic research uh, being communicated out into tribal communities and you know, as I did more and more anthropology, and especially as I started working at the museum, uh, which is, you know, which shares the heritage of many communities, I realized that this is a very broad need, far beyond just Native communities. So I had the seed of idea for uh, Sapiens back in 2014, and I had the chance to uh, connect with the president of the Wenner Foundation, and they were just so happened to be looking for a big project. 
And so it was like just this amazing universe had lined us up kind of thing, you know? And so um, the foundation started the magazine uh, and uh, I was grateful they uh, put me in charge. And uh, it's kind of just taken off from there. So we publish about 150 articles a year. We have almost 5 million readers a year from all over the world. Um, we started a podcast a few years back. was just another uh, vehicle to try to reach different kinds of publics. And so I learned, like you all probably, I learned a lot about podcasting and the awkwardness of having a microphone in front of your face and trying to talk to strangers that you know you know are listening, but uh, you never quite see them in front of you and all of that. So, um, yeah, so it's been uh, an amazing journey. And then a couple of years ago, right when the pandemic hit by chance, uh, I was offered a full-time job with the foundation to do Sapiens full-time. And it's just been amazing. I love the museum work. Denver Museum was phenomenal. Uh, but this is it, as if it was possible. It's, it, this has been even better. Um, and it's really like a dream job to do nothing but try to support anthropologists and the discipline of anthropology writ large in the effort to uh, break down those those walls, you know, that yeah. that have been put up for so long between academics and the public. Right. It's I find it much more rewarding work um, to take the information and and translate it into a form. Oh. I feel like for me, teaching was what did that, and for you, doing extreme history is mm-hmm. is what's done that. And so it's been fun for us to find more and more ways to do it, at least on this local level. So, yeah, um, yeah I think there is a huge need for it. And it's, it's so exciting that and congratulations yeah. on, on the job. Yeah. It, it's critical it's, that we do that. You know, it's critical that um, folks in these fields of anthropology and archaeology do that public um, interaction. And of course, that's why extreme history exists and that's why this podcast the dirt on the past exists is because we we do um want to translate that information and get it out because it's so important and it's so interesting and it's it's significant um to to humans and all that they do so um i love sapiens excited that you're doing that so what chip are you doing now what are you know you're kind of a thought leader in the field of anthropology so i want to I want to see what you're thinking about and and if you're working on a new book. So what what are you up to? Or what's the most exciting <laughs> yeah. research you've come across yeah. just in the yeah. in the work you do, you know, culling from what's what's coming out. Yeah. Sure. Um well, I've never been called a thought leader I think before, so I'll I'll take it as a compliment, I think. But. Good, good. <laughs> Get a bumper sticker. Um, yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah, totally. I am a thought leader. Exactly, that. yeah. <laughs> we don't I call just, everybody that. So, no, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that. I mean, I just think. I'm not sure where it leads. <laughs> <laughs> I don't feel like one, but I appreciate you saying that. Um, you know, uh, so I have a couple different projects I'm working on um, and some really amazing collaborations right now that I'm really excited about. One is uh, the realization in the last few years, especially for some of us, that the crisis of human remains in museums uh, without the consent of those individuals and communities extends far beyond Native Americans. Mm -hmm. And so I've been working with um, a couple of amazing archaeologists and scholars, um, Justin Dunavant, um, Delon Justinville and others, the Society of Black Archaeologists, to try to address um, the the problems of African-American and other uh, 
people that are in collections without permissions. Mm -hmm. And so there have been a couple of really high profile examples of uh, enslaved people being acknowledged um, that were collected in Harvard and other places. Mm. Um, there was this horrific case of a um, of victims of a 1985 police bombing who's yes, a victim, the children of several of the girls uh, from that bombing were being held, the remains were being held by forensic anthropologists and being used in a class um, mm. by a curator at Penn um, and a Princeton, it was a Princeton online class and so on. And so working with Society of Black Archaeologists and others, um, we're, that's more of kind of a policy effort and we're trying to get museums together to think about solutions and how to move forward and whether or not we need a, an AGPRA, an African-American mm. Graves Protection Repatriation Act and other kinds of efforts there. So that's one uh, effort. Um, the uh, Another thing I'm working on is I have a, a, a collaborative um, National Science Foundation grant on the ethics of ancient DNA. Mm -hmm. So um, this, in my mind, is sort of the next generation ethical crisis around collections of Absolutely. Native Americans where many people are, uh, there's what's been called a bone rush where mm -hmm. geneticists and their allies are going around and collecting as much bone and tissue as they can to, to try to get on the cover of Science and Nature. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, many Native communities are upset by that, um, and rightly so. And so uh, it's a project to study the, the problems there and to try to lay it out. And again, a whole range of uh, just, just um, unbelievably amazing, uh, great collaborators um, uh, in Native communities and beyond. Uh, and then thirdly, um, I'm uh, in a very different kind of project. I'm uh, trying to write a novel um, uh, with a uh, Cheyenne elder uh, named Gordon Yellowman. Oh, yeah. And we, he participated in an academic book a couple of years ago on the um, Native American boarding and day school experience. And so with um, another colleague... Uh, I published a book that was based on a collection at, at the museum and is, you know, I think is a story that was kind of limited as a history by the facts before you, you mm -hmm. know, you can only say so much. And I felt like so much of the history was missed uh, between uh, between the lines of documents, you know, mm -hmm. between in the pixels, between, you know, the images. Right. And so um and so Gordon and I are trying to tackle a book where we're writing uh, from half the book is from the perspective of an Indian school teacher. And then the other half is from one of the, the students. And so um, it's a brand new thing for me. I've dabbled in fiction, but never really kind of gone all out and working with Gordon's been phenomenal. Um, so that we'll see where that leads. It may lead to nowhere, uh, which mm -hmm. is very possible. Um, but it's been really exciting to at least um, to try to find uh, kind of more creative writing as a way to, in fact, get to deeper truths and mm -hmm. to to get to histories that are too often hidden. Fantastic. Well, we wish you the best of luck with that and, and all the other things you mentioned. So, so important. I think the understanding the ethics around ancient DNA is going to be fascinating. I've only read some things by Kim Tallbear on, on some of that. And, and there's just um, so many different aspects to consider. I'm, I'm sure that's um, and it's good to hear NSF is funding a project on that. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, stay tuned. 
Yeah. So there's so much more. Of course, we'd love to um, pick your brain all day, but we are running out of time and got to wind this down. So we just want to thank you so much for joining us today. Um, We want to remind people Plundered Skulls and Stolen Spirits um, is an important read. It's available in paperback, and we encourage everyone out there to find a copy. We also encourage all of the listeners to find Sapiens either as a digital magazine or as a podcast. And Chip, do you have a website where people can find you and other information? Yeah. ChipCowell.com. Okay, ChipCowell.com. Great. Please do find us too at Sapiens. And we have a brand new season ourselves uh, with uh, the Sapiens podcast just launched uh, this week. So, oh, fantastic. Uh, yeah. in, uh, for that special season, which focuses on black and indigenous archaeologies. Yay. Wonderful. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. I haven't, I, I saw the first one drop, but I haven't listened to it yet. So I'm excited to do that. Well, thank you, Chip, um, so much for joining us today. What a wonderful conversation. And thanks to all our listeners out there as well. If you love this podcast, please tell a friend and make sure to subscribe so it shows up in your podcast feed each week. And if you're so inclined, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. So thanks for listening today. And we hope you can join us again to find out more about The the Dirt dirt on the Past. A big thank you to our editor and sound guru, Steve Durbin. Thanks to Lawson Alegria for mixing our music and to John Chadwell for help getting the podcast out in the world. 